Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of plan investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the History of Persia. I'm Trevor Cully, and this is episode 11, King of Kings. So after talking about how the Taspid Persians organized and governed their empire last week, I said that this time was going to be a discussion of exactly what it meant to be king of the Persian Empire. Then I started writing that episode, and realized that my original plan for covering kingship before talking about Persian religion was never going to work smoothly. There are just too many details about Persian beliefs that you need to have some familiarity with before understanding the role of the kings. However, covering both of those topics before getting back to the regular narrative would be more time away from the story than I really wanted right now. So, surprise! This time we're returning to the narrative right around where we left off back in episodes 7 and 8. For those that need a brief refresher, that was with Cyrus having successfully conquered and subjugated Babylon, and settling in to consolidate his control over the largest empire the world had ever seen. His control stretched from the fringes of the Iranian plateau to the Mediterranean coast. A map of the early Persian expansion can be found on the maps page of our website. But before we get too far into those details, there is something I want to discuss first. Throughout the narrative episodes covering Cyrus the Great, I've spent some time here and there discussing all of the many royal titles he claimed over his life most of them appearing on the Cyrus Cylinder. However, there is one that I haven't really gotten into yet, and it's possible that this is the most important one, historically speaking. That is, King of Kings. The literal meaning is clear, the king is the ruler of all other rulers. That is not really the significant part of the title, though. 
More important is that this title, while existing before the rise of Persia, was used by monarchs and rulers right into the 21st century. And though there's nobody actively claiming it right now, I have no doubt that the world has not seen its last King of Kings. Even as all of those other titles used by Cyrus fell away or were replaced, there was almost always somebody claiming to be the King of Kings. And of all of the titles used by the Achaemenids, this is the one most consistently associated with them. Those that claimed this title weren't always Iranian, especially following the Islamic conquest of the Sassanid Persian Empire in the 7th and 8th centuries CE. For several centuries, in fact, Ethiopia was the only kingdom making regular use of a similar title, until the final collapse of their monarchy in 1974. The most recent ruler to be called a king of kings was actually Libya's Muammar Gaddafi, who invited several hundred African tribal leaders to a weird sort of summit in Benghazi, and was recognized, and I quote here, as king of kings, sultans, princes, sheikhs, and mares of Africa. King of mares, though, might have been unique to Gaddafi. The final Iranian ruler to declare himself king of kings was Mohammad Reza Pahlavi, who claimed the title in 1967 and held it until he was deposed in the 1979 revolution. The Pahlavi rulers, like many of the kings that preceded them in Iran, used the title Shah'an Shah, Shah being the word for king in modern Persian, which is also sometimes called Farsi. Shah'an Shah is regularly given as the translated title of the ancient Persian kings. This is not correct, but it is understandable given how hard it is for modern English speakers like me to pronounce the old Persian phrase, but I've practiced this a bit, so I'll give it a try. Cyrus and his successors would have gone by the title Kushayathia Kushayathia Nam. You might be able to hear how Kushayathia eventually evolved into Shah as the word for king. When exactly Cyrus adopted this title is hard to say. Prior to his rise to power, it was a title found in Assyria, Babylon, and Urartu. Lacking any written evidence from the Median Kingdom, we cannot say for sure whether or not it was used in there, but given that it was used by basically all of their neighbors, the Median kings may have also made use of the title King of Kings. This would suggest that Cyrus himself started using that title not long after conquering Media, but we cannot say with any certainty. What we do know is that the King of Kings is the most common title we see for any Achaemenid ruler, unless you just count king with any additional descriptor like great king or mighty king and so on. Alright, getting back to what exactly Cyrus the Great, King of Kings, had been doing since we last checked in. The last really solid date we have is 539 BCE. For most of the next decade, we can only speculate as to what Cyrus was doing. We have no reports of any major revolts against his rule, and the only significant building projects we can definitively associate with him are those mentioned in Babylon by the Cyrus Cylinder and his homegrown capital city of Pasargadai, which Cyrus himself would have been giving input and instructions for even when he wasn't personally overseeing all of the construction. Though the Pasargadai complex was never completed during his lifetime, based on the artwork and later inscriptions on the site, the first of the royal palaces, as well as many of the walled gardens and support buildings, would have been completed during Cyrus's reign. Cyrus undoubtedly would have spent some of his time living in the new capital, but that would not have been his sole residence. 
The ancient Persian kings, much like the kings of other pre-modern cultures both before and after Cyrus, had multiple cities that acted as capitals. These were cities of cultural, economic, and strategic importance scattered around their empire. The king spent part of the year in each capital to make sure that his power was felt across the dominion, and to make sure that royal control was being exercised over those key locations. Under Cyrus, the primary capitals were Babylon and Ecbatana, with Pasargadae joining them once partially completed. By now, Babylon's importance should be obvious. It was the nexus of multiple trade routes that carried imperial influence around the empire, ancient and prestigious, the former capital of the last major challenge to Persian hegemony, and the wealthiest city in the region, possibly the world at that time, and centrally located within the whole empire. Ecbatana was the first major city Cyrus captured in his conquests, the capital of the Median Kingdom, and another city that grew wealthy and powerful from its position on trade routes. It was probably the most heavily fortified and truly urbanized city in the Iranian world at that time, making it the logical base for any Persian administration. Pasargadai was, of course, an expression of Persian power as Cyrus wanted it to be expressed, and was the king's own personal project, thus elevating it to a center of royal power as well, even if it didn't have all of the background of Ecbatana and Babylon. However, Pasargadai was never fortified like the other capitals, and was never a hub of administrative and economic activity that the ancient sources describe at Ecbatana, which remained the functional capital in Iran, while Pasargadai had more of a ceremonial role. That role was developed even further by later kings. So those were the three major capitals, but Sardis, the former Lydian capital, also is frequently described as a royal capital in the early Persian Taspid period. This makes a certain amount of sense. Sardis was wealthy, a former center of power in one of the hardest regions for Cyrus to conquer, and Cyrus living there for periods of time would make sure that the more distant and rebellious western parts of the empire did not forget their king. I have always felt that Anshan is conspicuously missing from this list, as it was Cyrus's original base of power and the city that he leaned on so heavily to proclaim his legitimacy in Babylon. However, it almost completely vanishes from the narrative after Cyrus conquered Ecbatana, and seems to have been diminished in importance rapidly, with almost all of its political importance being supplanted by Pasargadai, Ecbatana, and later Persepolis and Susa. I think the best explanation for this is that the city was already in decline during the reign of the Taspid kings, and rather than try to bolster old cities with new projects, Cyrus replaced it with Pasargadai. Building a whole new settlement was more impressive and probably easier than refurbishing on Shan, and as imperial attention was focused elsewhere for generations, the original seat of Persian power fell by the wayside. Despite the one example of Anshan, following in the ancient traditions of the Near Eastern kings stretching back to the dawn of written history, we can assume that Cyrus and his satraps sponsored building and restoration projects around the empire, even if there is not much to specifically identify them with him. However, of all the purely monumental projects he must have commissioned, his own tomb was probably one of the most important ones. Unlike most of his successors, who were remembered in various inscriptions and monuments, we only know of a single monumental structure built to commemorate the first ruler of the Persian Empire, his final resting place. I described the structure architecturally in episode 9, so I won't retread much of that here. 
It looks like a one-room sandstone house sitting on top of a series of stone steps, and is still standing today just outside the ruins of Pasargadai. In its heyday, the tomb was heavily decorated, probably painted, filled with treasures and tapestries, and attended by priests. Undoubtedly, it was built to Cyrus's specifications and desires, to act as a combination of royal resting place, shrine, and monument to Persia's first great king. So that's what Cyrus was doing for most of the 530s, traveling around his empire, splitting time between capitals, directing building projects, and dictating the new systems of tribute that I discussed last time. But at the core, Cyrus was clearly still a conqueror. And even after taking the greatest city the Near East had to offer in Babylon, he continued to look beyond the borders of his empire for new places to rule. Herodotus tells us that he had made plans to cross the Sinai Peninsula and take Egypt, the last independent kingdom of note outside of Persian territory, but other than Herodotus, no evidence exists for any military action between Persia and Egypt before the reign of Cambyses, Cyrus's son and heir. And by all accounts, the Persian army did not cross the Bosporus and enter into Europe until the time of Darius. That rules out any westward expansion, except for maybe a few islands off of the Ionian coast, meaning it is finally time for us to turn the attention of this podcast to the east, and see what the Persians have been doing in the eastern half of their empire. Yes, I said half. The western part of the empire receives a lot of attention because it was more urbanized and literate, were able to piece together the story of what happened there from Greek, Babylonian, and Egyptian records, but most of the territory that Cyrus came to control after conquering Media and its tribute system was east of any of the areas I've covered so far. The Persian home base in Parsua was located in the southwestern corner of modern Iran, bordered by the Persian Gulf, but if you drew a line north to south from Parsua to the northern fringes of Persian control, then about half of Cyrus's empire would lie on either side. Sadly, we lack almost any detailed written account of Persian control in those eastern regions. As I've mentioned previously, Persian control was generally kind of hands-off, and we see very little exchange of material culture. As far as anybody knows, the region was illiterate before the Achaemenids introduced Aramaic writing, but from later Greek and Persian records, we can guess that Cyrus's control stretched east into modern Afghanistan, at the time the satrapy of Bactria, and north to the southern fringes of Kazakhstan, in the wide and open steppe lands where we have even less information. In the classical period, this entire region, and most of the southern steppe stretching all the way west around the Black Sea to eastern Europe, was largely populated by Iranic peoples. That is, people descended from the Indo-Iranian migrations. Their languages were very similar to that of the Persians, and sometimes even mutually intelligible. These people were generally not as settled and urbanized as the Persians and their western neighbors. There were few cities, fewer still before the Achaemenid period, and the further from the population centers and centers of political power you went, the more nomadic and pastoralist the people were. There were many different regions and ethnic cultures identified in the ancient sources. I don't need to list them all, but here are some of the highlights. Parthia, Chorasmia, Bactria, Gedrosia, Sogdiana, and as you reach the northern extremes of the Persian realm, we stop getting names for the land and you just have names for the tribes that lived there, like the Masagatai and the Saka, better known as the Scythians in Greco-Roman sources. 
These steppe tribes along the northern frontier were pastoralist horse archers, in the same mold as many of the other semi-nomadic tribes from the Eurasian steppe that you might have heard of, which harried the various settled societies right up until the early modern period. The Scythians and the Greek cities in Thrace, the Huns and the Romans. I routinely wish that I knew more languages. Even right in the middle of the US, I run into Spanish speakers all the time, and my social media always has a little Persian, Arabic, some Dutch and German. Rosetta Stone does help. It's the most trusted language learning program after all. It's also conveniently available on desktop or on the go as an app and has some really cool features that truly immerse you in the language you're learning. Just the first steps, like learning a new alphabet and some simple phrases, helped open new doors, and Rosetta Stone is a great choice as the trusted expert in this for 30 years and millions of users with 25 languages available to learn. They focus on fast language acquisition, without English translations to help you learn, speak, listen, and think in your new language while building long-term retention. Their true accent speech recognition also gives feedback on pronunciation, which can be really important for languages like Persian, where how you say something is very important. And on top of being available for desktop and mobile, you have the option to download lessons and take them offline. This is also all available at a steal. You can get lifetime membership, all 25 languages, for 50% off. Don't put off learning that new language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, History of Persia listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today. Today. Turks and Byzantines, the Zhongnu and Han China, the Mongols and basically everybody, just for some of the most famous examples. The Persians, too, had to deal with the Scythians and other tribes on the Pontic-Caspian steppe. They fought them, subjugated them, or just plain bribed them to keep them from raiding into the more settled and developed Persian territory. Over time, they built at least seven cities to act as a bulwark in Sogdiana, roughly modern Tajikistan. One of the first, and the largest of these cities, was attributed to Cyrus. You see, Pasargadai was not the only settlement that the first Persian king founded. There was also the city that we now know as Seropolis. Now, we arrived at that pronunciation through a series of translations, but the Persians probably called it something like Kurukatha. In either case, it literally means the city of Cyrus, or the city founded by Cyrus. Aside from just existing in the general region that I'm talking about today, we know very little about Seropolis and it won't be particularly relevant to the narrative until the Achaemenid regime falls to Alexander about 200 years after Cyrus's death. Just the presence of this city, which would probably have served as a center to project royal authority, as well as a defensive outpost, tells us that Cyrus not only campaigned in these northern regions, but was very conscious of the threats in his northern borderlands. The fortress city of Samarkand in Uzbekistan is also regularly attributed to Cyrus, and would have fulfilled a similar role, it's just that we have less information about it in Achaemenid times. Despite the general lull in Persian conquest during the 530s, it would seem that Cyrus continued to campaign actively on the steppe for the rest of his life, right up until he died in 530, 
which is kind of crazy when you think about it. He would have been about 70 years old, actively campaigning and fighting in ancient hand-to-hand combat. But this is our last episode with Cyrus the Great, and it's time to talk about how the Great King died. Since it's been about three episodes since the last time I had to fight with ancient authors to develop a coherent story, I suppose it's time to say it again. We have no fewer than five and a half different accounts of how Cyrus died, and for a cherry on top, none of them are actually Persian. We have four Greek accounts of a dead Cyrus the Great. Herodotus, Xenophon, and Theseus all tell us different stories of how he died, and then that half account is reports from the time of Alexander the Great visiting Cyrus's tomb and seeing his body. There's also a version from Diodorus Siculus, a Roman relying on older Greek works, and the final version comes from Barossus, the Hellenistic Babylonian author. Overall, all the sources manage to disagree about the details here, and I'll rule out Xenophon's version first because Cyropedia is so unreliable in all of its stories, and his story of Cyrus's death is entirely different and simpler than all the other versions. Xenophon tells us that Cyrus died quietly in his bed. It fit well with his idea as Cyrus as the great, ideal, benevolent king, but doesn't mesh with any other story we have. By far the most famous, as usual, is the story as told by Herodotus. On the recommendation of Croesus, now an advisor at the Persian court, Cyrus led a campaign against the Masagatai, along the Jaxartes River, now known as the Sir Daria, which sets our story somewhere around modern Uzbekistan. These were a tribe of horseback raiders. According to Herodotus, they were led by a warrior queen named Tamiris. Cyrus first tried to bring the Masagatai into his kingdom by proposing a marriage to Tamiris. She would become one of his wives, and he would not attack. Tamiris told the king of kings to bug off. Personally, I can't blame her. With her people, she was a warrior, a leader, and a queen. Why downgrade, give her power to Cyrus, and maybe even just become another wife in the harem? Cyrus, predictably, was unhappy with this. He was the king of the greatest kingdom the world had ever seen. Asking for a marriage was a kind gesture, and he was going to subjugate the Masagatai one way or the other. The Persian army was encamped on one side of the Jaxartes, and the Masagatai were on the other, so the Persians began building pontoon bridges and boats to cross. Tamiris warned him to stop, challenging the Persians to meet them in a pitched and arranged battle at a predetermined site. Somewhat surprisingly, Cyrus agreed to this, but not before discovering that the Masagatai did not know about the intoxicating effects of wine. So he left a large cache of booze and a token force to look after it, as the Persian army made their way to the arranged battle site. Those troops left behind were basically sacrificed in order to make sure the Masagatai were good and hammered that night, and hung over the next day when they faced the Persians. The next day, the Masagatai, led by Tamiris's son, were slaughtered and her son committed suicide. Furious with the perceived trickery and betrayal, Tamiris personally led another attack on Cyrus's force, this time a surprise attack on the Persian army that had just been through a battle. In the fighting, Cyrus the Great, king of kings over the Persian Empire, was killed and his body captured. After the battle, Tamiris decapitated his corpse and dunked his head in a pool of blood while the Persians retreated. That's really one hell of a story, but how much truth is there to it? Judging from most of our ancient sources, it seems the basic outline of events is actually correct, 
but Herodotus missed and embellished some details. Almost all of the accounts of Cyrus's death say that he died in a battle somewhere in the northeast of his empire. The exact tribe varies depending on the author. Barosus reports that it was a tribe called the Dahai, also along the Jaxartes. Diodorus says that it was the Scythians, placing it a bit further north. And Theseus places the confrontation in Bactria, fighting against a force of Indians and a tribe called the Derbikis. Herodotus really drastically seems to have missed the ending, though. He alone has Cyrus's body captured and mutilated, whereas other sources have his body returned to Persia. In the accounts of Alexander the Great's conquest of Persia, the great conqueror is supposed to have visited his tomb and seen Cyrus's embalmed body, head and all, lying in the mausoleum. So it seems that Herodotus must have been very wrong about that account. Another interesting part of the story to me is the idea that the Masagatai had no concept of alcohol. It's possible that this is just a literary motif that appears in literature and real events all through history, getting the unsettled tribal people drunk to compromise their ability to fight. It's a tactic that's supposed to have appeared all over the ancient world from China to Rome and continued right up to the conquests and slaughter of the native peoples in the Americas. I've always found Herodotus' suggestion that drunkenness was a foreign concept to the Masagatai odd, because alcohol was definitely known to these people on the steppe. After all, they did raid and trade with settled peoples who had wine all the time. But more importantly, they had their own alcoholic beverages, just not formed from grapes. In fact, Herodotus describes in another passage how the Scythians processed horse milk into an alcoholic beverage called kumis, or ariag. But the ancient Greek didn't seem to realize that this was also booze, it was just a funny way of milking a horse to him. So this story in particular is probably just the result of Herodotus not knowing a whole lot about steppe culture. Theseus' version of the story is probably my favorite, and I think I'll just let him speak for himself here as translated by Professor Andrew Nichols. Quote, Cyrus campaigned against the Derbikis during the reign of Amoraios. By placing their elephants in an ambush, the Derbikis repelled the Persian cavalry, causing Cyrus himself to fall off of his horse, at which point an Indian, for the Indians were fighting alongside the Derbikis and had supplied their elephants, hit Cyrus, after he fell, with a javelin below the hip, to the bone inflicting a fatal wound. However, Cyrus was taken up before dying and brought back to the camp by his servants, end quote. Theseus goes on to describe the great losses on both sides and a brutal counterattack, ending in Persian victory before describing Cyrus on his deathbed, naming Cambyses king, giving Bardia a huge swath of Central Asia and Iran as a semi-independent satrapy that paid no tribute, and naming his family and generals as satraps over the newly conquered territory. Of course, Theseus has some details off too. The presence of Indians, for one thing, may or may not be an anachronism. Certainly lumping all of India into one group is incorrect, but that would largely be because the actual politics and factions of Persia's southeastern frontiers were largely unknown to the Greeks, even those like Theseus who lived in Persia, until Alexander got to India himself. Theseus was also wont to include India wherever he got a chance, writing a whole mostly lost and hysterically inaccurate book on the region called the Indica. The deathbed scene is also very dramatic, and may or may not have been possible depending on how exactly Cyrus was wounded, but the sentiment remains. Cyrus passed and the control of his empire went to his sons. 
newly conquered territory was doled out to their supporters and family. That's just what we would expect if the king died and there was newly conquered territory to be managed. The exact details of Cyrus's final campaign will probably remain forever lost to us. It was somewhere in the northeast, against some semi-nomadic tribe, and whether or not the Persians won the campaign itself, they lost their great king. Cyrus's body was brought back to Pasargadae and placed inside his tomb, set aside from the rest of the Pasargadae complex in a verdant garden, richly decorated with carpets and tapestries and treasure. The body of the king was embalmed and placed into a golden coffin, resting on a table. Unfortunately, that whole account of the tomb is only known through writing, because at the same time the followers of Alexander were discovering the tomb to record this, they were also looting it. And by now, it's just an empty sandstone box on a relatively barren plateau. Two ancient sources from the 1st century CE, about 600 years after Cyrus's death, record an inscription on the tomb, the Greek Strabo and the Roman Plutarch. Plutarch's version reads, O man, whoever you are, and from wherever you come, for I know you will come, I am Cyrus, the founder of the Persian Empire. Do not begrudge me this little earth which covers my body. Compared to Strabo's, O man, I am Cyrus, who acquired the empire for the Persians and was king of Asia. Grudge me not, therefore, my monument. Strabo actually reports another version from Onoscritus, who accompanied Alexander, but that report describes a ten-story tomb and a Greek inscription in Persian letters that read, Here I lie, Cyrus, king of kings. As neither the ten-story tomb nor the Greek written in Persian script makes too much sense, this one can probably be discounted. Today, there is no inscription. Though if it were written in Persian, it must have been added later, after Darius, and thus could have been on a separate piece of stone that was removed sometime in the last 2300 years, if it ever existed. And not existing is definitely a possibility. However, assuming that it did, I think Strabo's is probably closer to the original sentiment. Plutarch sounds embellished and might project the wrong image of a tomb, suggesting burial rather than a mausoleum. The religious role of the tomb, both for the king himself and for those that came after, is not clear. It was maintained by the Persian priests that the Greeks called magi, and plinths surrounding the tomb have been interpreted as fire altars by some. But what exactly happened there is unclear. I'll have a little bit more to say about Cyrus's own beliefs next time. And I think that note about religion is a great place to stop and lead into the next episode. Next time, I'll introduce ancient Iranian religions, both Zoroastrianism and the older, less well-understood traditions that existed around it. I'll be brief with my farewell bit today because I want to end a little differently. So check out historyofpersiapodcast.wordpress.com for resources, maps, a bibliography, and more information about the show, and look for more episodes on your favorite podcast app. Now, for something that I have been waiting to do since I first came up with the idea of this show. Cyrus, called Kuvrash in Persian, was roughly 70 years old. He had become the great king, king of the city of Anshan, around 559 BCE, and ruled for 29 years. But more famously, he launched the Persian Empire in 550 BC when he conquered Media. From then on, he ruled as the King of Kings and had been Kashayathia Kashayathia Nam for 20 years.
Thank you all so much for listening to this first chapter of the history of Persia. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member? For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.